the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, looking at Easter. It's been that time of year. Uh, we had Easter Sunday last week. We did Palm Sunday the week before that. And um, we're heading into a new series. We finished up the last one right before uh, Palm Sunday, and now we're on to new ones. Um, and it's on the implications of the resurrection. And uh, I think what will happen over the course of the next couple of months is that uh, if I'm not careful, if you're not careful, if we're not careful, uh, we're going to begin uh, to take what's going to be said over the next two to three months as being legalistic. Um, and I think the key for all, for all of us is going to be to keep two things um, married to one another, both law and grace. Law and grace are easy to divorce. Uh, they're easy to stick a wedge in between. Uh, but that's inappropriate. Uh, our last series, uh, the series on the book of Judges, is about the scandalous grace of God. He just keeps pursuing his people. He keeps his promises, even though they are so unfaithful. He remains faithful to them when they're unfaithful to him. And it's easy to, for their, your overall takeaway from that series to be one that's not intended by the book as a whole. And it's this. Your takeaway could be obedience doesn't really matter in my life because the people of God were repeatedly rebellious and judges, yet God still loved them. Therefore, obedience doesn't matter in my life either because God's going to keep pursuing me. But that really is twisted. And it comes from a heart that does not want to submit to God. I ran across a quote this week uh, from a writer named Sinclair Ferguson. He writes this in his book, The Whole Christ. He says, the human heart has a distaste for absolute divine obligation. The spirit of the individual has an instinct, a sinful temperamental bent to divorce the law and grace. So this series is going to sound legalistic on one hand, but on the other hand, it's going to be very practical because there's a lot of commands. There's a lot of things to do. But I think bottom line is if you boil down our series from Judges and you boil down what we're about ready to do about the resurrection and you put them together, you're going to have the Christian life in a nutshell. And that's what I hope happens. That's why we're doing what we're doing uh, with the resurrection. So let's pray before we get started. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, thank you that you're always keeping us uh, off balance. Uh, Lord, as uh, we approach our life wanting to follow you as one that's pure, that's, that's, uh, that's a twisted view of grace, and then we have a twisted view of what it means to obey you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring balance to us, that you would reorient us, that you'd recenter us over these next uh, couple months starting uh, tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so this series on the implications of the resurrection for our life today. Uh, is really based on Easter. Uh, I think many of us, when we think about Easter, we think, oh, Easter, that's about the resurrection of Jesus. That happened 2,000 years ago. Or you think about Easter, and it's like, oh, all things that are true are going to become untrue, just like death. And so as we move forward in salvation history, uh, God is, uh, he's reversing the curse. And ultimately, uh, he's going to raise all of us with new bodies in the end, and we're going to live in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the way we think about it. It's future. But the way I want to approach the resurrection over the next couple of months is uh, the resurrection for the present. What does it mean for us today? What does Easter have to do with us in 2018? And this week, we're going to look at the resurrection uh, for the life of the believer in a really broad, uh, general view before we get into specifics. So that's why I've called it just the resurrection life. And I think the best text for that is what we find today in Colossians 3. This is the whole chapter. 
Uh, so let's read it, and uh, we'll get into it for the next few minutes. Colossians 1, or 3, verses 1 to 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what, what, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The Word of the Lord. All right, so no surprise here, but three points tonight. Um, The first one is the foundation uh, of the resurrected life. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 4. Uh, The second point is the shape of the Christian life. We'll look at verses 5 to 17. And then the application of the resurrected life as we, uh, again, look at verses, the whole thing, 1 to 17. So first, the foundation. Uh, The foundation of the first four verses. Uh, Paul grounds the whole chapter in Jesus' resurrection. And he does this, and then he gives directives. You see it there. You see the two directives. One's in verse 2. These are imperatives. These are commands. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above. Um, and then, uh, hold on, set your mind on things above. And then in verse 1, seek the things that are above. Those are the two commands in verses 1 to 4. They're really saying the same thing. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. But the way, the pattern that he's using here is true from the earliest times in the history of God's people is that he's giving past events, God's past saving events, as the basis, as the foundations for the way God's people are to behave today. So he does have you pointed backward at the resurrection of Jesus in order for you to see what it looks like to live the resurrected life. See, God wants them to obey because they're already loved, not so that he would love them if they obeyed. Let me say this again. God wanted them to obey because they were already loved, not so that he would love them if they obeyed. 
we see this in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, uh, in, in the prologue, right before uh, the first commandment, um, God wants to remind his people uh, that their salvation is not based in their ability to follow the Ten Commandments, but their salvation is based in the past saving event of him saving them from Egypt. That's why he says it there. It's because he wants them to obey because they're already secure, because they're already loved, because there's already affection for them, not so that they can merit affection by obeying the Ten Commandments. Then in the passage that Betsy read just a few minutes ago, Micah 6. Um, just flip back, there, flip back there real quick in your bulletin, page 4. Go down um, to verse 4. Micah's writing uh, hundreds, well over a thousand years after God has saved them from Egypt. And when he says in verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, he's wanting to remind them of their past Salvation that's already been secured. God already loves these people. He's already for them. They don't, need, he, they don't need to obey him so that God will be for them in the future. And then look what God does in verse 8. This is a famous passage in the Bible. It says, uh, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does he require of you? So just because he saved in the past doesn't mean there's nothing for them to do in the, in, in the present. They're to do three things. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with their God. So you see it, all, th all three of these instances, Colossians 3, Micah 6, Exodus 20, they're pointing backward at God's past saving acts so that they would know how to behave today. That's the foundation of their resurrected life, is the resurrection of Jesus. He wants them to, to, to remember that one, at one time they were like zombies. They were the walking dead. They were walking dead because of sin. But they've been made alive because of Christ's resurrection. Um, I don't know anything about medicine, uh, but I can get on WebMD with the best of them. And um, uh, it, something I came across this week and made me think of a bone marrow transplant. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about bone marrow. I really don't other than WebMD. I should have called one of you medical people or just texted Jenna um, since she's a nurse. Um, but I, what happens is that you get bone marrow transplant. You probably don't know what bone marrow is unless you're, unless you're in medicine. And it's the, it's the spongy tissue that's in your bones. And, that's, and if it's damaged, um, if it's diseased, uh, then your whole body will be a mess. And so when you get a bone marrow transplant, they're, what they're doing is infusing healthy blood stem cells into your body. And when they, when, they put these, when they infuse these healthy blood stem cells, they begin to replace the sick bone marrow. And that's exactly what's happened to us. We've now been infused with life from Christ to replace the death that used to be in us. But since we have this resurrection life infused to us, now we can obey. We can obey the things that we used to be powerless to obey. We can actually set our minds on things that are above. But this setting your mind, this seeking the things that are above, this isn't natural for any of us. It's rigorous. It's continual. It's ongoing effort. Because in this new life, this new life that's been infused into us, you've still got these old habits. You've still got these old desires that tell us something very different than the resurrected life. They tell us things like, Things on earth are really still alluring. 
And Satan would like nothing more than to convince you and to convince me that setting our mind on things that are above, it's a fool's errand. And if you believe him that's a fool's errand, then you're going to continue to set your mind on things that are on earth. And guess who wins in that scenario? Satan. So it's scary for many of us to think about a whole new way of life. What does it even look like to set your mind on things above? What happens if I fail? What happens if I start doing it for a certain period of time and then my mind starts going to things that are below? And Paul anticipates that fear in you. And he tells you that your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You're free to fail and you're empowered to obey. See, you're, you're free to fail because to get to you, somebody's got to get through God and he's got to get through Christ in order to get to you. That's impossible. You're utterly secure as you begin to stumble forward living out this resurrected life. But you're also empowered to obey because his life is now at work in you. This is the whole foundation for Christian morality. It's the whole foundation for Christian ethics is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because his life is now yours. You've gotten the transplant. So now that we've established that the resurrection of Jesus is the basics of our Christian life, you begin to ask, what does it look like? What is its shape? Well, that's what verses 5 to 17 tells us. And you'll see really two sections. So, so flip there if you're not there. You'll see uh, verses 5. You'll see these paragraphs it, that, that are in the bulletin 5 through 11 is about the resurrected life. It's one of renunciation. It's one of rejection. It tells us what is out of bounds. It tells us what are the things that are on earth that we're no longer to set our minds on. It tells us that the resurrected life has some no in it. Does your Christian life have some no in it? That was my conviction this week. My Christian life doesn't have a lot of no in it. I needed to land on verses 5 to 11 for my own soul. But then in verses 12 to 17, maybe you're in a different spot. And you'll see in verses 12 to 17 uh, that it tells us things that we're to embrace, to embrace, to affirm. See, the Christian life has some yes in it. Does the Christian life have any yes in it for you? Maybe the Christian life for you is just about the no and not about the yes. But the resurrected life has the, both these aspects. It is both positive and negative. It really reminds me of um, uh, my backyard and all three houses I've ever owned. Um, all three houses I've ever owned, the backyard has been a disaster. And um, the first house we bought, I paid, I see a couple of you that I paid uh, to help me with my backyard. And um, when I first moved in, our, the, our house we live in now was we bought a flipped house. Somebody had done all the work on the inside, and we didn't have to do hardly anything. It was glorious. But they didn't do anything to the backyard. Uh, the backyard had honeysuckle everywhere. It had, I think, had five blades of grass total. The rest was all weeds. And so to get rid of all this honeysuckle, we had to pull it all out. I had to pull out the old honeysuckle. We had old pieces of fence that we had to rip out and throw away. Dumpster after dumpster got pulled out. Pulled out. There were weeds that needed to be pulled out. It required chainsaws to get it all down and to haul it away. But I had lots of ideas when I wanted to put back in there. I wanted to put in a fence. I wanted to put in a swing set. I wanted to put in raised beds for gardens. Now I'm downtown, I've got to be a hipster and have a garden. I had to build a shed because I don't have a garage. 
Uh, I need to put in some fresh landscaping. But I had to, before I could do any of those things, anything that I, any of my new ideas of what to put in, I had to decrap my yard first. And Paul says right here, essentially, there are some things that are left over from the previous owners that have got to be put to death. Sexual immorality, slander, and the like. And those things are so serious that the wrath of, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming for such things. Now, I can just imagine uh, the church at Colossae, that's who the Colossians is written to. And I, as I was reading through this text early this week, I got to verse 6, and it kind of made me sit up bolt right in my chair. It made me think, gosh, I've got to get violent with my sin. Putting our sins to death, it requires pain, it requires effort, it requires blood, it requires tears. Because we love our sin, it brings us pleasure. And so to cut it out is painful. But we are to refuse ourselves these pleasures. It's not legalistic to treat your sins with violence. In the end, it's really good for us to treat our sins with violence because in the end, the pain that comes with giving our sinful natures new wounds is less painful than the pain that comes with the wrath of God. So, the resurrection life, it includes some renunciation, but it also includes some affirmation. See, if I would have just decrapped my yard and not put any new things in there, it wouldn't be very beautiful. It'd be really plain, it'd be really boring. And that's the way your life's going to look too. If you just do 5 to 11 without looking at 12 to 17, you're going to be a plain, boring Christian. Because God's intention for you is to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. His, his, his intention is for you to do some 12 to 17, some affirmation. Because in verses 12 to 17, you'll see that there's some new spiritual sensitivity, some new abilities that you have because a new, wonderful world's been opened up for you. There's some new possibilities because Jesus has raised from the dead in your life. So there's renunciation and there's affirmation. That is the shape of the Christian life. Okay, great. You've got the foundation of the Christian life is the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you've got the shape of the Christian life is some negative and some positive. There's some yes in the Christian life and there's some no in the Christian life. But where does this putting off and putting on take place? Where does this renunciation affirmation take place? Well, I think from our text, we can really see five major areas. And if you put those five major areas together, it pretty much is going to cover every nook and every cranny of your life. In the first place, I think uh, this has application, is in our minds. Look at verses 1 to 4. It just says mind over and over and over again. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. And then verse 16, it gives some more affirmation. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's going to require your mind. So your mind is a battlefield for the resurrection. Our minds are much like cars. If they sit idle in the yard, in the garage, whatever, uh, they're going to be useless and dead. Um, my uncle is a mechanic. Um, he's got... I think like a 1968 Porsche 911 that's been sitting in the back of his garage since I was 12 years old. 25 years. 
This thing's wrapped in plastic. It's got tarps over it. It hasn't run forever. If he went out there, he took the plastic off, he took the tarps off, and he put the key in the ignition and turned it, it wouldn't be any good. Why? Because it's been not used for 25 years. And your mind is the same way. If you don't use it, it goes kaput. You've got to do the maintenance to it. You've got to put gas in it. Let me keep working this illustration here. You know, when you pull up to the gas station, there's two kinds of fuel you can get, right? You can get unleaded or you can get diesel. All right? Same thing in the Christian life, except there's three kinds of fuel you can get. You can pull up uh, with your mind in your life, and you can put three things in your, in, your, in your mind. You can put the Word of Christ. That's good for you. Uh, you, can, uh, you can put your self-talk into your mind. That's not a good idea. You're your own worst counselor, and you should fire you. Um, or you could put the thoughts of the world. And the thoughts of the world will tell you what to think about sex and power and money. It's all garbage. It's all bad for your car. It's all bad for your mind. Our minds are the same way. And with our minds, we use our faculties of logic and reason. But then we get to our hearts, the second place where it takes place. And our hearts don't use logic and reason. They don't play hardly any role in our hearts. Instead of logic and reason, they're traded in for knee-jerk reactions. They can be very constructive or very destructive. Look at, look, look at our text, verse 5. You see evil desire and covetousness. That's all going on in your heart. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice. Again, things that are going on in your heart. And then verse 15, those are things you're put off. Those, those, four, those five things, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, put them off. And here's what you're supposed to put on. Here's what you're supposed to affirm. The peace of Christ to be ruled in your hearts. That's verse 15. Here's the things you're supposed to put on. Here's what you need to affirm to be thankful. That's in verse 15 too. And again, in case you didn't get it, verse 16, thankfulness in your heart toward God. So your knee-jerk reaction can be all the, all the things we're supposed to put off, or your knee-jerk reaction can be things like peace and thankfulness. So the resurrection life must, according to our text, play a role in our emotions. So you got our minds, you got our hearts. Third, uh, you've got our bodies. So the Christian faith, it's not just a set of beliefs that we have give assent to. It's not just, that's our mind. It's not just uh, something that can be confined to our experiences. That's our heart. But it is something to be lived out in our bodies. So verse 5, look at verse 5. You see three things there. Sexual morality, impurity, and passion. All of those things have to do with sexuality with what we do with our bodies. And then, go jump down to verse 17. Paul wraps up this whole section. He says, whatever you do in word or deed. This sounds a whole lot like uh, another verse that Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 10.31. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, he writes, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all the glory of God. So that means that what we eat and what we don't eat matters in the resurrected life. So you get the high and loftiest event of all history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, trickles itself down to the way you use your genitalia and what your relationship is with food. Your bodies, they matter. Fourth, your relationships. 
Look at verse 11. In the resurrected life, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. So there's four. You see the four pairs there. You have Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, or slave or free. The first three have to do with your race, with your ethnicity. The last one has to do with class. Now, I know that none of us, when we look at the world, do we see those designations? We don't see the world as Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. We just don't. But we still look at the world and we still have categories and we check boxes in those pairs and it comes out with a computation of what that person's supposed to be. Maybe it's white or non-white. Maybe it's college educated or non-college educated. Maybe it's sharp and rough around the edges. Maybe it's conservative or liberal. But what the resurrection won't do is it won't let us live in these categories anymore. Because the only category that matters is in Christ, you have the resurrected life, or outside of Christ, you don't have the resurrected Christ. And if you're in Christ, your race and your class must take a back seat in the way you view yourself and the way you view others. So the resurrection has profound implications on our relationships. We also see our relationships, verse 12. You see that, that list starts with um, uh, verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. You know what you've got to be in in order to obey those commands? You have to be in relationship. Those things are impossible to obey. They're impossible to put on unless you're in community. If you're isolated, you can't obey those. And isolation is utterly contrary to the Christian life. Because relationships are the arena for our faith in the same way that the kitchen is the arena for a chef or the gym is the arena for the athlete. This begs a couple of questions for me and you, doesn't it? Are you close enough to other Christians to practice these commands? If so, great. You're always going to have room to grow. You're never going to arrive at being compassionate hearted. If you're not close enough to other Christians to practice these commands, I would love to help you get in better connection with people in our church. Please let me know. So you see, these relationships have, are a big, 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 big deal in the resurrected life. This isn't just about you and Jesus. This is about living life in the Christian community. So we've seen our minds, we've seen our hearts, we've seen our bodies, we've seen our relationships. What else is there? I mean, come on, Marsh. There's one more. Words. Look at verse 8. You see slander and obscene talk. Verse 9, you see do not lie to one another. And then towards the end, you see that uh, th th those are things you're supposed to put off. And then the things you're supposed to put on, start towards the end, it says that you're supposed to teach and admonish one another. You're supposed to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, verse 16. And then verse 17, whatever you do in word. He could have just said whatever you do, but he didn't. He said whatever you do in word or in deed because they need to be separated. So with words, there's a very clear putting off and a putting on right here in our text. 
And let me ask you what I've been asking myself all week. How much has the resurrection affected your speech? Let me challenge you to something uh, that I've challenged myself to. And I've, I'm calling it the tongue assignment. Here's how it works. You've got seven days. I've got seven days, and I've got to make six commitments. I'm challenging you to make six commitments. Uh, don't slander. Don't use obscene talk. And don't lie. Put those things off this week in the tongue assignment. Put three things on. Teach and admonish one another with the gospel. Sing. And have a thankful heart. Thankful in speech. Give thanks. That's our tongue assignment. And I think what's going to happen is we're going to know that we've got a serious speech problem. That there's lots of room for the resurrection when it comes to how we use our tongues. So in conclusion, uh, why don't we see the resurrection happen in our lives? Is it because we haven't tried? Is it because uh, God's power is insufficient? Is it because we need to learn some kind of trick to unlock our potential? I don't know. But what I do know is I think there's three reasons why we don't see the resurrection happen in our lives. The first one, uh, we compartmentalize our lives. Again, let's go back to medical life. I might have really botched that bone marrow thing, but hopefully not. Um, so I might botch this too. Uh, think about an infection. We all know that infections are bad for us. We all know that they spread within us and they can ultimately kill us and they can even spread to other people. And the gospel is like not a bad infection. The gospel is like a good infection. It spreads and it cannot be contained. Now, you might approach your faith, your relationship with God, your Christian religion, your, your, your church life, whatever you want to call it, as an aspect of your life in the same way that you treat working out as an aspect of your life. You might treat it as an aspect of your life just like you do work or your studies. You can pick it up for a few hours a week and then you can put it down. But what happens with the resurrection is that it's a good infection. It begins to spread in us. So even if you want to compartmentalize Jesus in your life, he's going to start messing with you. And he's going to start causing his resurrection life to spring up in places that you weren't expecting. So don't compartmentalize Jesus. His life is coming. Second thing, we lack patience. Um, I'm still really young in the ministry. I feel so green. I feel like I'm bumbling around half the time. I have so much to learn. But one thing uh, I think I have learned from walking with Jesus by myself and helping other people walk with Jesus is that many times we expect change to happen very quickly within ourselves and within other people. But that just isn't true. Change is slow and change is arduous. That's why Paul calls for patience in our relationships in verse 12. And patience simply means not giving up while still anticipating change. So if he calls for patience in our relationships, it calls for patience with ourselves too. That if we know there's something that has to be put to death or there's something that needs to be affirmed in our life and practiced in our life, it's going to take time. So patience. We like patience. So we just give up. And the third reason is we lack hope. We compartmentalize our lives, we lack patience, and we lack hope. 
uh, I had a seminary professor, Dr. Dorset. Um, he was a, reco a recovering alcoholic. He'd been sober for over 40 years when I knew him. He had been a professor at uh, the University of Missouri. And while I was a professor at the University of Missouri back in the, I think it was probably the 70s, he became a Christian. And um, he was an alcoholic when he became a Christian, and he got sober after that. And so for his whole ministry, sure, he's a professor, sure, he wrote books, but a lot of the work that he did outside of the seminary with his church was that he spent uh, his time working with substance abusers. And I remember him, he was always telling stories about his work with substance abusers. And I remember one day, as he was telling a story, uh, he said that his go-to line when working with substance abusers was this, if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then change is possible in your life. See, nothing has ever been more impossible than Jesus being raised from the dead. He died with the sin of the world on his back. He absorbed the wrath of God for sin, not his sin, but yours. He was deader than dead. And he arose to life by the power of God. So friend, you're never going to be more hopeless than Jesus. The same power that brought Jesus from the dead now dwells in your body. And it dwells in your body to help you apply that same resurrection to your minds, to your hearts, to your bodies, to your relationships, and to your words. Let's pray. Lord, help us counteract our discouragement with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray we don't leave here so convicted that we uh, have no hope. But Lord, we, there, there's no reason to have no hope because the power of Christ lives in us if we're yours. So Lord, I pray uh, that uh, through these next couple of months, Lord, that you would produce in your, uh, within us uh, people who are holy and set apart. Uh, people who take everything in our lives seriously. Lord, help us to have some no and some yes um, as we look forward. And do this for your glory, we ask. Amen.